The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from John 12, 1-8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to, to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Emily. Uh, I want to uh, just uh, uh, provide an echo to uh, Gift's recommendation to the women to take advantage of the upcoming women's retreat. Trillia Newbell is one of the, one of the best uh, Bible teachers in our region and just a solid soul, and she's actually going to be focusing in uh, in her subject matter on the things that I'm going to be talking about this morning. Uh, one of our catechism questions asks what the chief end of a human being is, what's the chief purpose? And the, the answer is that, that, that our chief purpose, our chief end, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's going to be Trillia's focus, and, uh, and that's our focus this morning on a woman, Mary, who enjoys the presence of Jesus Christ so profusely that it makes Judas feel extremely awkward. So there's a lot going on in this passage. At the center of it is Mary's outpouring of affection, really a love gush uh, to Jesus Christ after Jesus has raised her brother Lazarus from the dead after Lazarus has been buried for four days. And so great miracles have happened, and Mary is, is taken by this. She, her breath is, is taken away by the power, the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. And, and Judas, what he does is he gives a demonstration of what happens with somebody who has an empty spiritual core when they are exposed to true spirituality and to a truly spiritual person. He immediately launches into this effort to shame, to criticize, to discredit, to shut down whatever is going on between Mary and Jesus. It reminds me of a, of a story I heard about Billy Graham once. Billy Graham went golfing. Hard to picture Billy Graham as a golfer, but he, he went golfing with a couple of other people, and there was an interviewer waiting at the 18th hole after they finished. Uh, who went to one of the, the people that, that was golfing with Billy Graham and said, what's it like to spend 18 holes with Billy Graham? I mean, tell me the truth. Did, did he shank one in the woods and then maybe mumble a cuss word under his mouth? You know, give me something. And, and the guy's answer was this, 
I am so sick and tired of Billy Graham shoving his religion down my throat. So the interviewer goes to the other person that was was part of this, this golf threesome and says, what could Billy Graham have said or done to elicit this kind of reaction from your friend? And he said, Billy Graham didn't say anything about religion or God or anything like that. He was just one of us, really kind, shanked a few balls into the woods but didn't cuss, you know, things like that. Uh, And what this is, is is really a picture of what was going on in the first century between Mary and Judas. It's as if Judas is saying, I'm sick of Mary shoving her fanatical religion down my throat when what Mary was doing had nothing to do with Judas. It was was just her and, and, and Jesus, right? And then the next thing that happens in the Scripture after this one, can you believe this? The chief priests, the religious leaders, plot to assassinate Lazarus, who was just brought up from the dead. And so, so it's this threatening thing that true spirituality brings to the heart of spiritually pretentious people who like their positions and their seats of power and their microphones and their book deals, but for whatever reason, they're really unnerved by Jesus and the impact that He has on truly spiritual people. And so, what I want to do in the next few moments is engage all of us in a discernment exercise to ask ourselves the question, am I with Mary and Billy Graham, or am I with Billy Graham's critic and Judas when the Holy Spirit decides to show up and shake things up a little bit? So, um, there are three signs of authentic spirituality that, that, that come to us in this experience between Mary and Jesus. One is we will sacrifice our dignity. Another is we'll sacrifice our social climbing. And then the final one is that we will sacrifice our security. When, when we have a real, authentic, life-transformative encounter with Jesus Christ. And so, let's start with the sacrifice of our dignity. Mary is emotionally swept away. And there's this love gush that happens that leads her to break all sorts of conventions that that were just understood uh, in the first century religious culture. The first thing she does is she she lets down her hair. Now, for a, a Jewish woman in those times, to unbound her hair was scandalous. Jewish women would never un- unbind their hair in front of men they were not married to or, or boys who were not their sons. It was a public spectacle of immodesty in that culture. And the other thing she does is she doesn't just touch his feet, she, she actually cleans them with her hair. And, you know, cultural context, their shoes were sandals. Uh, a lot of people, especially people who were poor, like Jesus, would walk around without sandals because they couldn't afford shoes. And remember, they didn't have pavement. It was just dirt uh, that they would walk in, you know, all, all week long. And they would rarely shower, maybe once every week or two because of the scarcity of water and so on, a lack of plumbing technology. And so, feet were so filthy that, that they actually had laws that protected 
servants and slaves from having to wash their master's feet. And here we have Mary just blowing all convention, and then she pours perfume over Jesus that's so costly that, it, that it's worth 300 denarii. Now, a denarius was, was one day's pay in that time. So, you're looking at a, at a year's salary all poured out at once on Jesus. And, and so, Judas has this reaction that um, exposes a whole lot about where his heart is. He's, he's very threatened, bothered, maybe even personally injured, he feels, by Mary's activity, when Mary's activity isn't, doesn't have anything to do with Judas at all in the first place. What's going on here? It, it's like this. So, so, Valentine's Day is coming up this week. Let's say that the Tellers and the Sauls got together the day after Valentine's, and Patty says to Wheat, my wife Patty says to Wheat, Todd's wife, what did Todd do for you for Valentine's? And, and Wheat says, oh, you, you won't believe it. I mean, he, he gave me a, a foot massage. He said all these really sweet things. And then he revealed to me that, that he had secretly learned how to play guitar last year, written 12 love songs, and he sang all of them to me. What did Scott do for you? He took me to Chipotle. <clears throat> I am going to resent Todd in that moment, even though Todd wasn't thinking of me at all when he was writing those love songs to his wife. But I'm going to resent Todd because of how his deep, gushing, over-the-top, fanatical affection for his wife exposes me for my lack thereof. Where are we in this story? Could we ever be accused of being too fanatical in our affections toward Jesus Christ? Do we have any critics who criticize us for how fanatical we are about Jesus, about His truth, about His beauty? about His great and glorious gift of salvation? Have we ever made anyone feel awkward because of how close to Jesus Christ we've become? You know, there's this section in 1 Samuel where Hannah, the, the, the would-be future mother of the prophet Samuel, is agonizing in the temple because she's unable to conceive. She's unable to have children, and she so longs for a child, and she's, she's weeping over that. And, and, and she's praying such passionate, heartfelt prayers to God that, that, that she can't even speak. And, 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 and the, the priest Eli sees her praying from a distance, and all, she's, all he sees is her moving her mouth and her body, you know, perhaps shaking a little bit, and a very charismatic moment you might say. And Eli the priest, the professional minister, says, you're drunk. What's the matter with you? You know, you fast forward a couple hundred years, and you got the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit rains down on the church of Jesus Christ and the people of God. And it says that, that the effect of the Holy Spirit's presence was so 
overwhelming, that, 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 that there was this gushing wind. And, and people of Jesus started speaking in what it calls tongues of fire, languages that they'd never been trained in, dialects that, 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 that were dialects of another land and another country and so on, preaching the gospel in languages they'd never learned. And the critics, like Judas, are standing at a distance saying, I'm so tired of these Christian people shoving their religion down my throat. What they say literally is they're drunk, they're intoxicated. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says, do not get drunk with wine, but there's an alternative to getting drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Is there anything about my faith that would cause somebody else to, to say he's out of his mind? He must be drunk on something because he's so taken. Now, here's the thing about Mary. Her love gush is not reckless. It's very, very much driven by content and substance and history. There's nothing chaotic or reckless about it. It's just very affectionate. But everything she's doing is grounding, grounded in the truth that, that the one who was and is and is to come, Jesus Christ, told her dead brother to live again, and her dead brother lived again. I mean, I love how casually the, the text just says, now they were all having dinner, and Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, was there. Because that's what Jesus does. He raises people from the dead. But it's so casual, it's so matter of fact, and yet, and yet Mary, she has a moment, and she's, she's taken who would not be amazed? Who would not lose their inhibition if you got your brother back? You know, one of, one of our church members <laughs> said to me after an Easter Sunday once, why are we, and specifically why am I so stiff? He says, I'm waiting for an Easter Sunday where somebody will get up right in the middle of your sermon interrupt you and look around the room and say, people, it's true. It's true. Doesn't this change everything? Shouldn't we be doing backflips? Shouldn't we be leaping and dancing? Because He gives us dead brothers back. You know, Blaise Pascal, no intellectual slouch, philosopher, founder of modern-day statistics, mathematician. When he died, they found a, uh, a, a note sewn inside his coat, and it was his own story or accounting of an experience that he had in the presence of God, and it, it read like this, the year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November, from about half past 10 in the evening till about half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not of the philosophers and intellectuals, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, the God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, forgetfulness of the world and everything except God. One finds oneself only by way of the directions taught in the gospel. There it is, connecting his passion to substance. 
connecting his affections to truth and good theology and Bible. It's never disconnected. The grandeur of the human soul, joy, 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 tears of joy, the fountain of living water, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, total and sweet. Theology on fire, doctrine that leads to joy. Have you, have you ever stopped to contemplate how emotive the Psalms are, the prayer book of God. You've got it all. You've got anger. You've got doubt. You've got fear. You've got joy and laughter and happy feelings and sad feelings and lament. You've got it all. It's all there. That's what a relationship is. It, it's, it's the mingling and, and exchanging of, of emotion and feelings and thoughts. It's FaceTime. You know, one of our, one of the members of our staff, we, we, we have this sort of time of worship and sharing of stories and how God's at work in our lives once a month as a staff. And uh, this month it was Mark Nestor who's, um, we have chairs because of Mark. Uh, we are taken care of because of Mark. The place is clean and organized every time we enter the building because of Mark. And Mark had sort of a merry moment. He, he, he talked about how, you know, he sees his, his life as, as, as one in which he just craves crawling into Scripture. <laughs> and when he crawls into Scripture, then, then Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father crawl into him, and, and, and sometimes he can't contain himself. I'm happy to report to you that nobody felt awkward. We had no Judases getting all suspicious and anxious about Mark's love gush. Here's the thing. Anybody can get in on this. And some people, for them, the love gush is much more extroverted. For others, it's more introverted. What it, what it boils down to is a heart that, it, that, that, that has moments where it explodes. And you can have that without raising your hands. You really can. And sometimes when you're raising your hands, none of it's going on in your heart. See, Judas is the external pretender. Mary is the love gusher in an extroverted sort of way. Martha has her hands down serving. But her heart is in the same place as Mary's, right? Like a healthy marriage, the foundation of faith is not the fireworks. The fireworks are the exclamation point. The fireworks are a sliver of the relationship built on the foundation of being face-to-face, -face, being side-to-side, -side, listening, and serving. But, but over time, true spirituality will also explode in moments of intoxication and wonder over who this God is who loves me and gave Himself for me. We'll sacrifice our dignity sometimes. We will also sacrifice our social climbing. So Christian fanaticism, fanaticism driven by the gospel will, will cause us to minor on appearances and major in thanksgiving, will cause us to minor on drawing attention to ourselves, minor on selfies, and major on things like love and kindness and humility and servanthood. So, Catherine Hepburn, the actress, uh, in a very transparent interview, 
said that when she got famous, when I arrived, she said, I dropped my husband. I was a pig. He was wonderful. I was a pig. It wasn't like he had a problem. I was a pig. I used him. I dropped him. She's describing what can happen when we get successful, when we get our break, when we get the call back, when we get the raise, when we get the promotion, when we get the book deal, when we get something that elevates us in the pecking order of the society around us, when we get named apostle like Judas did. Sometimes success can poison a person and, 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 and create this illusion of self-importance, of specialness, of superiority, of swag. And you know that you've got a cluttered core. You know that, that, that you've got a soul that, that is compromised and fragile when, when, you, when you get elevated, as Catherine Hepburn did and so transparently admitted, you get new friends. And the people, you know, the band that got you there watches you as you leave them and, and take all of these selfies and have all these VIP moments with people of note, with the elites, with the inner ring, and you discard the people who were once your most loyal friends who are no longer useful to your cause. This is in me too. I mean, I have to admit that, that sometimes I enjoy the sound of my name more than I enjoy the sound of Jesus' name. I admit that sometimes I walk away from here more concerned about what you think of me than I do about what you think of Jesus. It's in all of us. But fanaticism around Jesus creates an opposite effect. You know, when I first, when I got my first pastor job, I was an associate pastor in a church in Kansas City, and one of the first things that the senior pastor of that church asked me to do was vacuum the dead bugs out from beneath the administrator's desks. And I did it, but I was really annoyed to have been asked. But looking back, what really should annoy me? The fact that I was asked to do that or the fact that it annoyed me to be asked to do that? Here's Martha, the sister of a celebrity, the guy who came up from death. What's it say about Martha? Martha served. Same Martha. With the same people serving. Even Judas, she is serving Judas. You matter, Martha says. As Ryan said in the prayer, Jesus is the equalizer. He takes us off a high horse but he also elevates us, and he puts us all on equal ground. In the family of Jesus, everybody matters. In the family of Jesus, everybody belongs equally. And I, I think this is the reason why Christianity has historically felt most attractive to people who are losing out in the world and has felt least attractive to people who are winning out in the world. But in a true, true church, in a truly spiritual community, people who are ignored by the world 
can become VIPs in here. And people who are VIPs out in the world, if, if the merry thing is happening in their hearts, they tra- take great joy in vacuuming bugs out from beneath administrators' desks. And if they don't take joy in that, there is a problem. You know, John Stott is one of, one of my heroes. John Stott is a very well-known, globally known pastor, scholar, leader, died a few years ago, and Christianity Today did a piece about his life. And in that piece, uh, they interviewed a Latin American theologian named Rene Padilla, and uh, Rene Padilla described a trip that uh, he and John Stott took to Argentina together, and, and uh, you know, they were dropped off by their cab several blocks away from their hotel, and it was pouring rain, and so they, they had to walk in the pouring rain to their hotel. They were both too exhausted. They just threw their filthy, muddy shoes on the floor and, you know, took their showers and went to bed. And um, Rene Padilla says that the next morning, he came into the commons area of where they were staying, and there was John Stott polishing Padilla's shoes. World famous pastor, writer, scholar, well-known all over, the, all over the globe, just voluntarily picking up somebody's smelly, filthy shoes and cleaning them off to start the day. And Padilla asked him, what are you doing? And Stott said, Jesus taught us to wash one another's feet, but you don't need me to wash your feet because we have plumbing technology and soap and so on, and you've taken your shower, but I can wash your shoes for you. John Stott, much like Mark Nestor, made a daily habit of crawling into the Scriptures until Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father crawled into him until he became a man of the basin and towel, until he became a man who washed feet. Ever heard of a man who washed feet before? Way up is the way down. Henry Nouwen called it downward mobility. The more mature you are in Christ, the more elevated you are in the kingdom, the lower you go. The closer to the ground you are, that's where the glory is, and that's where Jesus is. We'll sacrifice our social climbing. Will you do that? For Jesus? Will you give up some elite access for Jesus Christ? Will you give up your VIP pass for Jesus Christ? Will you give up backstage for Him if you have to? Huh. Will you give up a Grammy if you have to? Or will you play the angles? Hmm. Lastly, we'll sacrifice our security. In the next verse, the Pharisees plan to assassinate Lazarus. Why do they want to kill Lazarus? It says, because many Jews were going away. They they were removing themselves from the leadership of the Pharisees and the scribes and believing in Jesus. They they were losing power. They were losing influence. It didn't feel safe anymore because they built their whole identity on that. They'd become intoxicated. There's that word again, intoxicated, drunk on power, drunk on being the man, drunk on being the one who gets the greetings in the marketplace and who gets to sit at table one at banquets and stand behind the microphone. A few weeks ago, I talked about how if you are a Christian in China today, if you go public with your faith, 
you put your own life at risk. Now, in the United States, you, you don't put your life at risk when you become an extroverted Christian, when you become a public believer in Jesus Christ in all the places where you live, work, and play, when you say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, first for the Middle Easterner, then for the American. When you become that person, when you stop caring, as Mary did, what the people around you think, Somebody might assassinate your character. If they can't assassinate your person because of the laws of our land, they might try to assassinate your character, and that's what Judas does with Mary. But Mary is free from caring what Judas thinks, what Judas says, or what the impact of what Judas says might have on her reputation. Doesn't care. She's willing to lose face, to be misunderstood, to be mischaracterized, to be slandered, even by an apostle or her peers or her community, because she's like that little girl who misquoted the 23rd Psalm as she stood in front of her church. The Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. Or did she misquote? She's also free from the fear of scarcity. Judas is appalled. 300 denarii, this could have been sold and given to the poor, but we get the commentary here. We know what Judas was really after. He didn't care anything about the poor. He didn't care that Mary was taking potential money away from the poor. She, he, he cared that, that Mary was taking potential money away from Judas because Judas was the keeper of the money. He was the treasurer, and he used to dip his hands into the offering plate and say, don't mind if I do. And we say, we say to ourselves, how awful, what kind of person do you have to be to steal money from the offering plate or from, from the poor? You know, the irony here is that the place where Mary and Martha had chosen to live is a place called Bethany, which means house of the poor. They are living among the poor, <laughs> while Judas the slacktivist, while Judas the social media warrior who, whose activism costs him nothing personally, gets irate. When Mary and Martha are running circles around Jesus in, in, in their ministry among the poor. See, Judas is like the American Christian spirit, well, charity starts at home. What that really is is a euphemism that means charity ends there too. Let's be honest. On average, an American Christian will give two and a, two and a half percent of their income away to a combination of the church, the poor, and nonprofits. 2.5 percent. Over half of those claiming to be followers of Christ in America give nothing drunk on income, drunk on net worth, drunk on consumption, drunk on retail therapy, drunk on mammon, which you cannot love and love Jesus at the same time. You see? You're Judas. You're Judas. 
I'm Judas. I am Judas. I'm a greedy man. I'm scared of losing my financial position. You? Turns out, we're all on the hook for needing grace. What Judas did actively, most American Christians do passively, steal from God. Malachi chapter 3. I'm thankful I can say this while our church is way ahead in the budget this year, so you, so you, don't, you can't read in like I'm desperate, you know, for you to open up your pockets. I am not the least bit desperate. I am not after your money. I, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is after your heart, and He will fight for your heart by getting in your face and say, you're stealing from me. And you say back to Him, how are we robbing you? And He will say, just as He says in Malachi, in your tithes, which literally means your tenths, your ten percent, that in those days was to go to the temple, and your offerings, your contributions, above and beyond to the poor, to the needy, to your neighbor, to spontaneous gifts of joy and generosity. Well, you know, that was the law. That's the Old Testament. Look, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus had not happened yet. The fullness of the grace of God in the gospel had not been fully revealed yet. What should grace do? Make us less generous or more? than people who were living under the law of Moses. Test me. This is the one place in all the Bible where God says, test me. Test me in this and see if I don't pour out so much blessing on you, you won't know what to do with it. And then he goes on to define blessing. This isn't a prosperity gospel teaching. This isn't a health and wealth thing where you put it in and you're going to, you sow your seed and then you're going to get, you know, tenfold that. That's not at all. You may lose your job after you start to give. The economy may tank after you start to be generous. That's not the point. The way that he interprets his own words, God, in Malachi 3 of, I will pour out blessing on you is this, through the meeting of your needs, as he defines them. We can't define our own needs because here in affluent, opulent, 37215 America, our understanding of need is way different than what a need is in the third world. So we need Jesus to come in and define what our need is, and our greatest need is to be able to be open-handed and open-hearted like Mary was. Otherwise, we are so poor. We are so poor. I can have a nine-figure net worth and be one of the poorest people in my city because my hands are closed. My fists are tight. And I'm dipping my hand, either actively or passively, into the coffers of God and taking what's His. What is Mary doing? She's giving up a lesser security because she's confident that she has a greater one in Jesus. The one who sacrificed Himself, the one who washed filthy feet. Lazarus is here reclining. He wasn't looking for a book deal or for a TV appearance. He's here as one of the folks reclining at the table. Jesus is the hero of Lazarus's story. Jesus is the hero of everyone's story, but the way that He became a hero was by setting a table, by 
allowing his body to be shattered and shredded and his blood to be shed to finish the work, not to give 10%, but 100%. 100% liquidation. Gave up his dignity, gave up his power, gave up his social status to make a place of belonging for lepers and prostitutes, people who are mentally ill, blue-collar people, disabled, people with special needs, all of them. And he gave up his security. He said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. Make me vulnerable. Take my power so that we can say, the Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. So where are we at? I love you. Let's pray. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always, heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. Lord, may this be our cry. Make us rich in the truest sense of the word. In your name we pray. Amen.